All right, listeners, it's Ryan and Megan, and welcome to the Mental Health Mixtape, a podcast dedicated to fostering open conversations, sharing stories, and exploring a diverse range of topics related to mental health. So hold on to your seats as we sit down with some amazing guests to get their perspectives on the ever-changing landscape of mental health. And for all you old folks, no need to hit the record and pause button. Just sit back and let us navigate life's playlist together. During this podcast, you may hear stories about traumatic events and our guests' experiences. There may be discussions about suicide, traumatic events, and the outcomes from these events on personal lives. If you're struggling with anything you hear, please reach out to your peer support team, psychologist, call 911, or head to the nearest hospital. In Canada, you could call Boots on the Ground Peer Support for First Responders at 1-833-677-2668. Talk Suicide Canada at 1-833-456-4566. And in the United States, call 988 for the National Crisis and Suicide Lifeline. It should be noted that the information shared on this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical, psychological advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right. Well, welcome back to the Mental Health Mixtape. We're here with Heather Edward uh, from Canada, and we are so happy to have you here, Heather. I mean, I know uh, you and I had a brief conversation a while back about uh, everything and anything that lasted, oh, I think we scheduled a meeting for 30 minutes and it went over an hour. So, you know, kindred spirits, um, you know, we're so grateful to have you on the on the podcast. And, you know, we always usually just start the podcast off with how did you get to where you are now? I mean, your background from when you and I chatted was uh, had quite the depth. So I was just wondering if you could just kind of outlay to the listeners exactly how you got to where you are right now. Sure. Well, thanks for having me today. I'm really passionate about this subject. And you're right, Ryan, we, uh, you and I got talking for 30 minutes and it was an hour and then we've been conversing ever since. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. So um, I actually started in paramedicine in the 90s. Uh, I was a paramedic with uh, Toronto Paramedic Services. Back then, I think it was called emergency medical services, everything changes name. And then I've had a really great career in paramedic uh, services from being a primary care paramedic, an advanced care paramedic, and then having the opportunity to move up into different leadership roles and responsibilities with different organizations, uh, Toronto Paramedic Services, Frontenac Paramedics in Kingston. And then my last uh, role with paramedic services was with BCEHS. And then, um, and in those roles, I got to uh, be part of, you know, a peer support team, peer resource team. Uh, I got to be exposed to just a lot of different changes in how we approach mental health and wellness mm-hmm. for ourselves and for each other and for organizations, and both like operationally, organizationally, and, and personal. And then recently, I've just moved into a, a nonprofit healthcare organization here on Vancouver Island. It's called Shoreline, and it's actually one of the first of its kind. It's really innovative, and it's created by the community. But it's interesting because the parallels of mental health, you know, for a medical office assistant is really similar to those for a paramedic on the road. And we often don't put them together. Um, So what sort of brought me to here is um, I've always had this knowledge of we can do better and how can we do better and how are we going to get there? And I've just found that, you know, all of all of the really passionate people that are working towards doing better, it needed to have some sort of um, framework Um, and academia sort of weaved into it. We can't just always say, you know, this is how we feel. We needed to validate it in some way, shape or form. So I did my um, master's of leadership through University of Guelph 
Um, Dr. Angelo Caravaggio is actually a, a guru in leadership who I still um, am really aligned with and really like his teachings and leadership. And then that took me down a really more mental um, health approach, like wellness, well-being. And that took me to um, Queen's University. And I'm just finishing up. I'm, I'm just finishing um, my last year. It's my thesis through um, to get to be a doctor of science and rehabilitation and health leadership. And my specialty um, or my area of focus is on mental health, well-being of paramedic leaders. And um, I have to tell you, it's been so frustrating um, in trying to resource absolute like academic material or not just like a not just like gray literature on this is how we feel in a statement, but a way to actually validate and measure and identify. And when I came across the BOS program, uh, I'm not promoting BOS, but when I came across it, I was like, woo, the holy grail. So I've really been um, embedding the BOS program and the ideology and sort of how we're thinking about approaching mental health. And I, I really um, am engaged and believe that it's a, a really good approach. So that's sort of how I got here. I've been really lucky. I grew up, my dad was a psychologist. Um, he actually worked for the RCMP well before anybody ever thought of in, in you know, engaging a mental health specialist. So, you know, our, our topic around table, mental health was a normal topic. So for us, it was never taboo. It's what actually put food on our table because that was my dad's passion. You know, he taught at the University of Alberta. He had a private practice. Um, he worked with the RCMP. I believe it was the Edmonton Police, but you know what? I was a kid, so I really didn't get all the finite details. Um, so I guess I just am living something and experiencing really good mental health myself. But I recognize in others that they haven't been fortunate to to grow up with that sort of support. And and also that perhaps we haven't quite embraced it fully for the leaders. We've been so busy taking care of other people that we haven't quite looked at the leaders' mental health. And um, so that's really why I'm looking to do this thesis. Long answer to a short question is to... <laughs> I say like where where are we because I don't think we know exactly where we are and it's hard to plan where we're going if we don't actually know where we are so uh -huh. that's my really long story of like how I got here and what I'm about and uh super passionate about about this this movement towards mental wellness and mental health and it's it's just something that I, I eat, sleep, drink, dream, like everything about, about this all the time. Sometimes I got to shut the tabs down because I'm so passionate about it. Um, well, so that, I mean, this is like a, this is a heart and mind and soul and, you know, lifestyle connection. I think that we've made like I, Heather, I just like, I literally, I'm just like, I bow to you. Like that's your story is amazing. And, um, you know, I love the intentional use of the word movement. I often think that we are um, we are engaged in uh, I don't I don't know if I want to say the word battle because that makes it sound really conflictual and adversarial adversarial when maybe doesn't need to. But like this is this is a fight for human rights. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's about advocacy. It's about communication. And you know what I think? I think Megan, although you say it's not a battle, I think internally again there's organized. I'm, I'm Megan, uh, Dr. Megan Edgelow. I'm stealing her yes. troop model. I'm really okay. Megan, and she has like this troop model that's like organizational, operational, and personal. And I think, I think sometimes, although it may seem adversarial, I think the problem is there is a lot of conflict, and it is adversarial personally. And I think that it's a battle of what was, what is, and what will be. So although um, I I agree with you, like this isn't a battle, but a lot of people are battling 
are battling that eternally. So I hear you. I acknowledge you. You're right. But I, I think it is sometimes a battle for people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of people who are taking some brave risks um, to step in the ring. And I think you're one of them. And so where are we? Like, what have you learned so far? Um, well, I've, I've learned that there's really not a lot out there. Um, like we have, there's, when I, I was so frustrated in uh, doing my doctorate, I still find it so frustrating that when I look to find information about leaders and about their mental health, um, it's more about what you should be doing for other people. But how about the leaders? Um, like when I did a really um, in-depth literature search, so I started at an academic level and then a great literature level and then a blog, a lot of it was just personal statements, which is completely valid um, and really necessary to start that. But there's a lack of, but how do we help the leaders? How, what support do they need? And I don't believe it's a one size fits all. There's this big sort of umbrella approach of like, we're gonna have peer support. We're gonna have, you know, leadership training. We're gonna have psychological education. But at some point it needs to be geared towards the leader. And it doesn't, and, and, and a leader to me is anybody that has influence. A leader is not about rank or authority. It's about a person who has influence and a person that engages and and listens and learns and helps you know move something forward it's not about a rank or a title it's about influence okay. and the currency of leadership is just that influence um so what i've learned is that there's really what you should do not what you can do and a lot of the leaders um in healthcare in first response they're still kind of waffling, like what now? And what I've also learned is a lot of the courses like R2MR was fantastic in that it actually created dialogue, understanding, you know, the red, orange, uh, like the color scheme, the box breathing. But the, the thing that I found a lot of people and what we're missing is sort of a longitudinal approach to healthcare. So these one-offs, let's have a course and let's create it. There wasn't a lot of like, now let's discuss it. And how do you actually take that knowledge and embed it? And then we need to talk about it. Like, this is my experience. So it was a super critical, really important, love the R2MR um, and really appreciate all those courses. But I found that it's, it's not really, the course is not R2MR, but it's not the mental health approach for leaders in healthcare is really not very robust. And it's it's a it's a one sentence in an 11 page document. And I'm not hierarchical in that it has to start at the top. It has to start at every level, but it was really not addressed. So great frustration when I read it. Yeah, yes, a great frustration. And, you know, I, I don't know if you would have a thought on this. So I think we align. Hey, Ryan, like I, I have nothing but good things to say about regimental readiness in the sense that like, you know, we know that it got people talking. Like, I don't think we'd be at this place in having this conversation today and considering all the things that should still happen without R2MR, you know, like it, it got it kicked things off. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I made a I don't know if it was a bold statement or not, but I gave a talk at that conference, um, the Canadian Institute for Military Veteran Health Research Conference on Tuesday and said, like, you know, it's it's not R2MR, it's not BOSS, it's not this course or that course or this thing, it's all of it. It's all of it and it's ongoing and in the face of unrelenting stress and ex incredible exposure to trauma and, you know, trauma, you know, traumatized organizations, whatever, we can't just say that it's one thing. It has to be this ongoing and iterative and longitudinal approach to health and wellness. And 
I think people get that and now it's trying to figure out how to get the theoretical understanding into the actual practical deployment. I couldn't have said that any better. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with you 100%. And it's also the mindset of, to be honest, uh, a lot of leaders know what they needs to be done, but they don't know quite how to get there. And, you know, we're, you know, especially in first responders, like we see a problem, we fix a problem, we move to the next problem. But this, this will take time and it's not a one size fits all approach and it doesn't fit some and there's a generational approach and I'm not talking about like people in their 20s 30s 40s I'm talking about generational approach in terms of in the career and it's also people entering um, a lot of first responders my husband is a retired police officer so we have great and military he's in the Canadian Armed Forces as well so we have a lot of really good debates so it's also not just a we can't just say, okay, here's your silo and here's your box you're going to fit into. Like, there's so many things that come in with, with, there's so many backgrounds and previous trauma, or it's not always about trauma, it's about success stories and resiliency as well. Because I feel sometimes when we talk about stuff, it's always, you know, like, oh, there's trauma, which there is, totally acknowledging it. But there's also like, but what's the resiliency you brought from where you were and how have you survived and been so good in bringing this forward? And how can we do that knowledge translation because most people in healthcare or, um, you know, first responders, they have a lot of resiliency. And how do we how do we translate that? And how do we best fit what might be right for one person might not be right for another? So, like you said, it's got to be a mix. Like not everybody likes the same type of food, right? Like we we can order from a different menu. We can we can purchase what we want, what's going to satisfy our body and what our body needs, the nutrition we need to, to make our bodies well. But what about our minds? Mm-hmm. So it's just a different approach of, okay, what what food or what nutrients can we give you for your to have a healthy mind and to have a healthy engagement? See, so. I love that approach, Heather, that you just talked about, about, you know, the success is what have people learned. I'm in the middle of a book by Dr. Dan Pronk out of the United uh, Australia. He's an ex-special um, SAS uh, physician that worked with the teams down there during the conflicts. And yeah. he's got a he's got a pro- resiliency shield, and I'm working through his book right now. And it's the successes based upon his experiences of trauma and what yeah. has come of this. And he's built this framework that quite scarily aligns with the before operational stress program in a lot of different factors. And that is an interesting perspective because I do think that we miss the successes for those leaders or paramedics or frontline workers that are elements of resiliency, although they are struggling at times, like myself, you, I mean, we probably both had those moments, but what are the successes and what can we learn from them? And I love that approach. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm never really super comfortable about talking about myself. I like to talk about other people, but this is about my approach. And I found I've been so successful because I've had, you know, I had a really good foundation from my dad. Um, I had one of the best partners, Robin MacArthur was my paramedic partner for 10 and a half years. So good. I had so many really good leaders and and I embraced the, the opportunity to learn from them. But again, like you said, Ryan, I, I feel right now, like we go to a negative space of, this is what and uh, like COVID was horrific and everyone that was pretty traumatic, but but we've survived and there will be another one. Like I remember I was a paramedic in Toronto when SARS hit and there's always something else that's coming down the way. But how do we protect ourselves and acknowledge that we're going to get into those those I wanted to say shit storm, but I just said it like we're going to get into those. Right. And how are we going to how are we going to do the best that we can? We will face trauma, but 
we also have to celebrate our successes. And I'm not a I'm not an optimist or a pessimist. I'm a realist. And I think I think it's just like how have so many people survived and done so well? And then how have the most resilient like you think they're together, like they're struggling and what are we missing and what have we done? That's great. Like yeah. we do really well on a lot of things, but I think we have a long way to go. And and taking it back to my thesis is, you know, we're making a lot of assumptions of where people are, but have we actually asked them? And mm-hmm. have we gathered that data and said like quantitative and qualitative data? Like, where are you? And I think I really love that, you know, the the BOS program and the DR2MR is evidence-based and evidence-informed, and that adds some validity. Like we used to, you know, in paramedicine, Ryan and I were talking about this, uh, Megan, and we had such a good conversation. Like it's who knows most about this and who can put a PowerPoint and who can go talk about it. And, and although that person might be the best person to be passionate and talk about it, we're now coming to an age where we have to define it, explain it, and and back it and and have some like we can't we can't build a house on sand right so I really think that you know all the programs that are out there are doing so great but how do we communicate them how do we present them you know paramedic leaders are already working off the sides of their desks I mean most of them have eight corners right they got two desks and all those corners are full and where do we find time for them if they're so busy doing their job taking care of other people when are we going to get them to take three days off and to go to a conference and actually say holy smokes, like, yes, like we have to make time to make ourselves well. And we also have to take time to celebrate that we are well. Mm. Like, well, and I think, you know, like organizationally, there needs to be support for that. But I also find, you know, we're doing some, we've been building some curriculum to try to do some leadership training as a um, another sort of branch of BOSS and the Before Operational Stress Program. And What's really interesting, I find, is that there's also this whole socialization with leaders where they're so unwilling to give themselves the time and space to take care of themselves or to feel deserving of it or to feel um, like if they take something for themselves, they're somehow robbing someone else of it. Right. So there's all this all these really unhelpful myths, I think, that leaders somehow internalize (laughs) and, and like we're having to chip away at some of those. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting when you're talking about. you know, the leadership training part of part of uh, going back to my comps exam with Queens is that it was really uh, I was given a great um, sort of assignment to to come up with best practices to promote um, mental health well and wellness. And part of that, I my conclusion was best practice was um, programs like like BOS. And another thing was leadership um, development, because, you know, as leaders, you know, a lot of leaders, um, they were great on the road, let's take paramedics, so we're going to put them into a position of leadership, but they've had no formal leadership training, and all of a sudden their buddies become their subordinates, and and they struggle. So that's also leads to moral injury, to moral distress, primary trauma, secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, like it, it's all in there. So if we give, it's not just about how's your mental health, but how are you at doing the job? And a lot of times we don't onboard leaders well, we don't provide them support well, um, and it's because honestly, we're just too busy getting stuff done, like tick, 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 like COVID, right? Like we got to get this done. We got to get the masks. We got to do this. But how are you? And my practice with my team in Frontenac, got a really great team of leaders in Frontenac is, you know, it's like, okay, let's, let's just have a, let's go out and have a team. How are you? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How work? Like, how's it going? And, and that's always like, I always want to touch base with anyone that's, and I never say that people are in my reporting structure because I feel I work for them. 
I don't, nobody works for me. I, I work for them and I try to enable them, empower them and support them. But I always like to meet with my team and say like, what's going on and, and what are we missing and where can we go and how are you? And, and sometimes it's, it's, it's funny. They're like, holy smokes, I didn't realize I wasn't looking at myself. Like I let them talk about, um, I have one really fantastic leader and uh, he was so engaged in taking care of other people that he burnt himself out. And it's like, let's take some time for you. Like, how are you? And then he realized, he goes, holy smokes, yeah, he's so busy taking care of other people that he forgot about him. And and that leader models to everyone else that it's okay to stop. And if we have leaders that say, you know, like today, wow, that was, that was a day I really struggled with that decision today. And, you know, I had to really stop and think about it. That models behavior for other people to say it's okay. And it's, and it's not that people have to make themselves vulnerable and say, I struggle today. But it has to be that we need leaders to model. I took a break today to actually go for a walk to to just, you know, feel some ocean air, which is living on Vancouver Island phenomenal. Um, but I think we need to promote that more. Right. Like all those all those emergencies. Yes, there's timely emergencies we have to address, but some things don't need to be decided. Um, Chief Paul Charbonneau, who's retired, I think he's the executive director of the Ontario Paramedic Association right now. He gave me a really good piece of advice and he said, not all decisions need to be made today. And he said, and sometimes, you know what, even if the decision comes to your head right away, like take the time and the space to say, okay, let's really talk about what happens. And I think I've been asking anyone on my team to do the same with their mental health and how we approach stuff and, and their wellness and their well-being. Like, let's really pause it and, and think about it, not just make a snap decision. Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, and I, I think we would submit or I would submit, Ryan, you can tell me what you think. A, when you were talking about that leader, that's I mean, I hear Ryan talk about that, about how he led people. So I know he kind of leads from the front in this. But my, my belief is that leadership development is about making sure that people have good ability to develop relationships. Absolutely. Which, absolutely. Right? Because because as I say, you know, Dr. Angelo Caravaggio, who's my absolute guru, I adore him. Yes. You know, and um, and Norhouse, right? Like leadership is about influence and you can't influence people if you don't have a relationship. If you base it uh, only on authority, then people do things because they're told to, not because they feel that intrinsic drive to do it and to do it well. And you really have to create that trust in those relationships and that that psychologically safe space. I, I know we say psychologically spa uh, safe space a lot, but and, and I, sometimes I feel it's overused. Um, mm -hmm. Because people need to really understand what it means that it's not just a term. And I find a lot of the, the mental health terminology when I really get into it and get passionate and talking about it, I was like, okay, you're dropping a lot of key terms, but you really feel it, mean it, and understand it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also an opportunity that we have as leaders. Uh, like, uh, you know, your organization is is amazing at, at sort of paving a path and hacking through the forest uh, of, like, breaking down that sort of stigma and I think that's where we still need to have those conversations and that dialogue. And we need to have the research uh -huh. and validate it. Like the conversation I had with Ryan was so awesome. And and the fact that like Lisa Vaders, who's my uh, she's my partner right now on this assignment at work for, at, for school, the fact that we had the whole hour dog walk talking about your presentation um, it was so it's impactful and it's it's a ripple effect and it's so cool and it takes you know, it takes those one hour conversations when you're walking the dog talking about, wow, this was so cool that that just spreads everywhere. And and it's just so invigorating and it's just pretty awesome. What the hell did you two talk about? 
Well, since we talked, you know what? Lisa and I went down this whole path. It was good. We went through all of the presentations. She sent me all the the brochure. Um, Lisa's my um, she's she's going to school with me for people who are joined the. You know, we were talking a little bit before we started uh, recording today. No, Lisa, and I was I was talking about you and Ryan. I'm like, I feel like you two have this like. <laughs> oh, geez, not, I don't want you to pump my tires any more than you already have, Heather. <laughs> Heather, you hit the nail on the head with a lot of the things. I mean, I got no formal leadership training when I moved into a supervisory or assistant supervisory role. Um, it was, you know, as an assistant supervisor within the organization that I worked in, it was really difficult space. I, I would say it's the hardest position that I've ever been, you know, been taken on or the span of my career because you were leading the people that you were expected to work with the next day if you weren't acting up into a supervisory position. And with no context or no leadership training or no um no conversations around that yeah the other is you know the generational gaps and i'd love to hear your perspective on you know some of the leaders across the nation north america you know even internationally you know we know that they're at the tail end of the baby boomers and the very early gen x um mm -hmm. and there is that generational gap between the millennials and gen z's about expectations work ethics um, oh. how do we reach those leaders from you know that perspective when we know that there's that work ethic that comes in from the gen x early and late baby boomers that may still be in you know chief deputy chief or senior leadership how mm -hmm. do we get that kind of ball rolling or how do we shift and and change the the goalpost to help them see that you know that work ethic although worked in the beginning how do we actually open up the conversation so that they can see the perspective of the people that are just underneath them in the in you know in the next leadership you know perspective yeah it's it's uh it's funny that you say that because um my um, major research project at guelph was about how to best develop leaders yeah. um actually address that and then secondly um in the leadership course i took with my doctorate of science through the school of rehabilitation and health sciences was was one of the courses was addressing the generations so um so i feel like i'm not going to go all academic highbrow on you i'm just going to go passionate heather on this but First is we, when I put together a presentation, like each generation has a preferred method of communication. And when I did that, I was like, hmm, like um, different generations, some of them want a quick text, like, hey, thanks for today. Um, other people want a formal email. Some people want uh, a phone call. So what I've learned, um, first of all, as a leader, leading and being led by other people is I always like to say like, what do you like to be called? How do you like to be communicated with and what 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 do you struggle with? And I just right off the hop like to identify, like, how do you want to communicate? And then when I have the right lines of communication, then I have the ability to influence. And a lot of the leadership training, like Ryan and I were talking about this, is, again, you take somebody and you put together a leadership course. My biggest pet peeve is that people inter interchange the words leadership and management. Um, and again, this comes from Dr. Angelo Caravaggio is that they're not the same. Like I like to say I'm a leader with management responsibilities. Leadership is about leading, inspiring and management. The currency of management is control. It's about measuring, documenting, scheduling equipment. And we are like even when people use the term, you know, I'm part of management. Well, then that means that you don't influence people. You do a task, you do a job and you measure it. But what we really need to look at is we need to tell people you need to be a leader with management responsibilities. And some people just aren't set to be leaders. They're really great managers. So if we're going to develop, how do we reach those people? First of all, we have to create a shared language and a shared understanding. And I think that's really bifurcated because every chance I get, I will correct people that 
is not the same and it's not used interchangeably. And I challenge you on that. And I and I want to really talk about because before we can say, let's develop leadership, let's define it. Now, leadership is like like snow or the word love. There's so many definitions. You know, Peter Norhouse is a, a book I really recommend. And, you know, we talk about that. But if we're going to develop generations of future leaders, we have to, first of all, make sure that our leaders are mentally well to lead that we have to make sure that our leaders are willing to understand that there's different, you know, the great man theory to transactional theory to to all these labels. Like I find those so frustrating, all those leadership labels, because really what it is, is just about what you need at the time. And again, stealing from Dr. Angelo Caravaggio, if you say I'm a transactional leader, then, then you're missing half of your people because that might not be what they want. And we're teaching these leadership theories. This is the way you should be. No, it should be situational and about the person, about where you're at. And so although people are gaining greater understanding, there's no greater frustration to me when I hear people say, this is a, and in interview questions, because I recently changed roles, they said, what type of leader are you? I said, well, that's an ineffective question. <laughs> like, I'll tell you why, because I'm not, I'm not a certain area of leader. I adapt it to who I am, the situation, is it timely? So I think we need to have people to challenge the language, first of all, and to challenge what we expect a leader to be. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the best leaderships I remember, we were as a pretty um, I was in a senior leadership role um, as a as a clinical educator um, in Toronto Paramedic Services, and uh, we would go around and um, with the education department, you know, inter, you know, engage with people and say, here's a bougie, and here's how we're working, and here's the new stuff, and and it was really interesting because we were it was a pretty dynamic cardiac arrest on Christmas Day. And, you know, you have these old school, really good, top-notch ACP medics. And they're like, yeah, we're going to do this. And we have this, you know, fairly new hire go, "Um, you know, there's another way to get out. And it's right back there. And we're like, yeah, total leadership role. But we made that space where, because I always like to say, does anyone have any other ideas that we're missing here? Like, are we missing something? And, you know, and it was even I was slightly intimidated by the, you know, the high flyer ACPs that were ACPs when I started as a paramedic. And now I'm in a leadership role where I'm supposed to be teaching them. I was like, holy smokes. But we made that opportunity for that, you know, really young, new paramedic to totally take the leadership role. But we also have to have leaders who are open to that. So when we look at the different generations, I think basically it doesn't matter what generation you're in is that everyone wants to be validated. Everyone wants to be included and everyone wants to feel like they're part of the team and that they're safe. So those are the foundational pieces. But if we're going to look at leadership, we also need to add some, we need to break these, this is a leader. This is what they do. And this is the the type of leader that I am. We need to be more open and fluid about it and acknowledge that leadership is about relationships. Yeah, I really appreciate that so much. I was looking at something yesterday that somebody posted on one of the social media challenges and it was like, good leadership is, and it literally had like 12 or 15 different little bubbles. And it was like being a visionary, innovating, being good at talking to people, managing. And I was just like, why would anybody want to be a leader if these are all the things that you're putting in front of them, right? (laughs) Like it's impossible. And then I, and I don't know, I, yeah, I think we're just speaking the same language here. Like if I think about, you know, people who I would identify as having been leaders in my life, it's not people who had this incredible, like suite of skills or like they followed a framework really well. It was that they gave a shit and they actually cared about who I was as a person and I felt safe with them. And while they for sure gave me tidbits, like you said, you know, 
the idea around how to make decisions and stuff. It was more so about how it felt to be with them. And it was inherently about the relationship that you developed, you know, and <laughs> to me, I would rather have a graphic that says to be a good leader, just like in some ways, be a good human and figure out how to get along with the other humans. Right. <laughs> I love that. And, and you know what, too, like, it's so important that we think, you know, being a good leader is about having relationships, but being a, a an effective, and I don't say there's no good or bad leaders. You're effective or ineffective. Right. You're, Right. You're, you can be effective, ineffective, or toxic. And again, I'm stealing from Dr. Angelo Caravaggio because there's no good or bad. If you're right. a leader, you're a leader. It's just your level of effectiveness, effective, ineffective, or you're toxic. There's no good or bad. But the okay. other interesting thing is that we also, he's got a really good book out, out by the way, that that explains that all. He's It's so phenomenal. He he's he changes, he's, he he really puts in a way that you can really understand it and 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 look at it from a different viewpoint. But I think, you know, not to challenge you, Megan, but to take maybe a slightly different perspective as leaders, we also have to disagree. Mm-hmm. Have to disagree. And I think it's John Cotter. Ryan and I went down this whole John Cotter moment where it's like, it's um, how I forget what the article is, but it's so good. And it's like cohesive collaboration. Like you got to take these two pieces of sandpaper and put them together and keep rubbing them. And then they're smooth. Like, and that's part of like those, those moments that you had, Megan, like the leaders that, you know, Ryan and yourself, Megan and myself, it's like, you know, I was, I was able to disagree and have those conversations sure. and say, but, but why? And those have been way more impactful um, to think. This is, I find this so interesting because, so I'm, I, I got really hooked on um, happiness literature and um, a number of other things several years yeah. ago, which really fits being a trauma therapist, right? Because like, of course, a good relationship involves the ability to disagree. It's remarkable that we even have to caveat that. And I, I don't mean you shouldn't, but it's like, yeah. I think we have, we live in this world often, many people, I'm not meaning to generalize, but like, we're so just, dis- we're so uncomfortable with discomfort. And whether yeah. that's emotional discomfort or relational discomfort or, you know, discomfort and not knowing everything in our leadership role or whatever the case may be. And it's just like, when did we when did we buy this idea that we're supposed to be comfortable and happy and everything's supposed to feel good all the time? Like, it's just yeah. it's not realistic. I don't know where I got the saying from, but I say it all the time. And sometimes I just want to slap myself because I find myself I <laughs> always go back to this saying. But I'm actually, I think it was Robin MacArthur, who was my partner for a long time. She says, you know, I'm not always right, but I'm always comfortable. I like I'm always confident. No, she says, I'm not always right, but I'm always confident. And she also said, you know, um, um, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. And Mm -hmm. as a leader, we have to be uncomfortable and we have to we have to acknowledge that we're we're uncomfortable and we do the best we can at the time with what we know. And retrospective, you think, oh, yeah, maybe I didn't do the right thing. So those are a few things that I live by, right? I, I'm not always right, but I'm c- always confident. And I'm confident that I'm wrong a lot because um, I'm always wrong. Like, I'm wrong every, at least once or twice. I'm not going to let my husband listen to this podcast now. Um, <laughs> and, um, but I'm always, you know, uh, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Like, I don't know. And I remember um, when I was in um, when I was doing my master's of leadership, my master's of arts and leadership from Guelph. It was really interesting because I went back and I had a, a team, and we were really working on an issue that just was not rolled out well. And I said, you know what? I really don't know. Mm. <laughs> it's like silent. And I say all the time, I don't know. But if I don't know, I need to know who knows. And I need to, and and as leaders, I mean, it's pretty obvious. We just need to be comfortable saying, I have no idea. I don't know. And I'm comfortable not knowing. And I'm going to try and figure it out. And I'm going to make mistakes. Um, but that all leads back to to understanding 
what your role as a leader is. And your role as a leader is not to to charge and to lead. It's it's to support and to innovate mm-hmm. and to to talk and to engage and to to like create some movements. And that those lists that you say there, Megan, I cringe every time I read those. Like I was like, well, that's not fair. You're really putting a lot of pressure. You know what your job as a leader is? Is to influence, to engage, yeah. to learn. I, I think the biggest thing and what I what I when I see those lists, what I always get disappointed is, you know, when people say, "What's your hobby?" Mine is education. <laughs> Much to my bank accounts, um, displeasure. <laughs> Chagrin. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, like, what's your hobby? Like, what do you do? Oh, I I learn. Like, oh, what are you doing? Like, what's your hobby? Oh, I'm gonna read some articles this weekend. And I'm an extreme extrovert. Like, I'm a really extroverted person, um, um, as you might be able to tell. But I also really enjoy learning. To me, that's a passion. I find it so fun. Um, and then as leaders to take that back and to, to to have other leaders. And I find that when you're passionate and you're talking about leadership and what I've learned, that other people are able to step in and, and learn too. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I don't know, I mean, I muse on this all the time. And, you know, I I really love being part of the conversation in this movement and the, the you know, the intent the um, attempt to create and, and facilitate change and all that. Like, I mean, I just get high off of that completely. <laughs> So there's, I just, like, I think about, like, can we not weaponize mistakes? And therefore, you know, we maybe need to start from a place of um, really radical benefit of the doubt giving to people who are in our sphere of influence, right? And because, you know, I think a lot of the, and I'm using the word leader right now to mean people who have stripes on their shoulders. A lot of the fo- those folks that I talk to, like, they're like, well, if I don't do it right, or if I'm seen to be like, I don't know, or whatever, it's, I'm going to be ripped apart, you know, and the pressure of that, right? Like, that's, well, that's- insurmountable in a lot of ways. And and that that leads you into the the conversation of just culture. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I joined um, one of the organizations. I joined. I'll, I'll give Frontenac Paramedics the 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 shout out. They totally had the just culture poster on the wall, and it's phenomenal because I don't know if you're both familiar with just culture, but it's used a lot in the hospital setting, and that that's where it gives you the opportunity. Like, was this, you know, was this his mistake? Was it the organization's responsibility for not providing that knowledge? Did they willfully and knowingly make that decision against knowing the policy? Like, so I think if you, I mean, it's not just A, leadership, B, this, C, that, but if you embed a just culture into an organization, it will take time because that will need to be generally, a generation needs to to, to depart, to totally, like all the discussion and all the passion that we have here, some of it is just some people are just going to have to slowly ride off into the sunset. And that's how we're going to have to have organizational, operational and per- personal change. Um, but it's interesting because just culture is part of that psychological health and safety. Where are we with with our wellness? Uh, where are we with leadership development? Where where are we with with exactly all those different components? And, and it, it will honestly, this is not. This will take time. Have you seen the YouTube video about how to start a movement? Have you seen that? I think, did I send I that to you? I have seen that, yes. It's, no, I have. it's so good because, you know, you take one crazy guy or I don't know if we're allowed to use that on a mental health mixtape, but I'm using the term like as, you know, we would in the 80s, sorry, child of the 70s, early 70s, I'm, I'm using the terminology. Um, but it was so cool because it's this one person that takes to starts dancing in front of a crowd and everyone's like, and you know that people were judging that person. And then you yeah. take the most courageous person to me is the person that joins that leader. It's not the person that was, you know, um, out there making the it, what takes 
courage and is courageous in how we're going to move it is the people who join. And I think we have the opportunity, like I think I'm joining that one person, which is the movement. And I think we have the opportunity to have more people coming in on that. Then the difference is though, when you have everybody dancing on the side of the hill, like in the YouTube videos, we need to have a bit more organization and structure to that. Cause we just can't all party on the side of the hill cause we're gonna roll down and people are gonna get hurt. So I think if we look at, you know, forming mental health and wellness and resiliency and discussion across all healthcare, not just first responders. And now that I've moved into the, uh, you know, the the nonprofit healthcare of the Shoreline Medical um, Society here on Vancouver Island, we we really I recognize that we've missed a whole bunch of other parts of healthcare. They're not even discussed and they are feeling the same thing. It's just, you know, public, um, you know, first responders and public safety personnel have come more into the 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 light because of you know sadly there's been some suicides and some people have left and we've been we finally stepped up and said this is enough we're hurting and i think we have the opportunity to see that there's a lot of other people that need to be acknowledged and we need to provide them with some education so um i think there's a huge opportunity and it it seems so weird to be so passionate about people that are hurting but i think then that gives us the opportunity to help and to create an understanding um so well, so the, who should we be passionate about if it's not those who are hurting, right? You know, like, absolutely. I think as long as, I think that's exactly it. Like, as long as there's, I don't know, I, I certainly have to keep myself reined in in the work that we do because, you know, like one person <clears throat> is not going to be able to boil the ocean, you know, but I think, you know, one person becomes two people, becomes five, becomes 10, becomes a force multiplier, right? And um, and why why not? Why can't we have that goal of like foundational culture change and you know application of just principles from just culture and you know getting rid of this sense of marginalization at least when it comes to being able to take care of what happens on the inside for these like tremendously important jobs these, that people are doing for our communities right and and I don't limit that to public safety I think that's anybody who's making an impact on the civil you know the citizens of our of our society right totally agree and it's it's really interesting what you said there Megan is you know, you have no idea, although, you know, like you guys are presenting at these conferences and, and doing a really good job. Like I saw where Ryan, you were presenting in Calgary somewhere because I creep you guys both on Instagram, not Instagram, on LinkedIn. Where are they now? Yeah. What are they doing? And this is so cool. Um, but I think what's what's really important to know is it might be that one conversation and that one sentence that you have that could A, save somebody's life or B, influence them to to seek help or C, they might be able to be that first little pebble, that ripple. And there's, like you said, to tie it back to what we we're talking about earlier, it's um, Megan, like it's that one conversation and just that, that one opportunity. I know we're looking at this at a really sort of umbrella. Let's create this framework and let's, let's do this, but let's boil it down to the one person that we might have and holy smokes, we might change because that would affect everybody, their family, their, their friends, we have such a cool opportunity. So although we're going like mega, like here's our program, it's all about an individual and engagement. And and it's just such a cool moment to know that there's one person that could possibly impact you. Totally, and yeah. I think Ryan's really good at this. He's really good at this on our team. He's very good at being the like, because I can get, you know, especially we had that really big large scale project last year, or whatever, I can get really hung up on the like, but we have to change everything. And he's just like, yeah, but you know, if there's the, if there's the one person, right? Like if there's the one person who um, is impacted or makes a change in their outlook or whatever, there's that Jewish proverb that says, 
I'm going to totally screw it up, but it's like he who saves one life saves the world entire. And I, I just love that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and it goes back to the stoic pieces. You know, I've, I've, I've had iterations of my own personal ethos over the years. And, you know, some of them, some of them work, some of them re were revisited, some of them were changed, some of them. But the one that's really kind of landing with me and it, it speaks i think to the leadership to the front line to peer support to hospital systems is uh, a quote by seneca the younger uh, like one of the original stoic philosophers and it says wherever there's a human being there's an opportunity for kindness oh, and i, I think that. you know the more that i look at that in its entirety and it's a big thirty thousand foot kind of quote but mm -hmm. if you get granular with that it's just like you said it's the one person yeah. you know empathetic, kind conversation may be the opportunity to start a movement or to shift something where that pebble or the ripples actually begin to start getting bigger and bigger and the conversations change. And I think, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head in so many different ways. You know, Road to Mental Readiness, just to loop it back, I think was an amazing program that we put in here, um, started the conversation, but then what? You know, <clears throat> what's the next? It's great to start. The Mitchell model. We used the Mitchell model for a while. Remember the Mitchell model, yep. though. Early model with ICISF. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's interesting too. Right. Sorry, I feel like I cut you off there because I was feeling super passionate about what you're saying. Um, but it's interesting too because you know we're talking about you, you know we're using the analogy of throwing one pebble in and creating the ripples. But you know what? There's never one pebble. Like we're taking a whole big pile of rocks and we're chucking it in. So that ripple from one rock is gonna is gonna collide with the other ripple and there's going to be two forces that are colliding so you know none of this is linear or you know one thing at a time we're really taking a handful of rocks and chucking it in and and those ripples are going to balance each other that one force will be stronger than the other and the ripple will then go the other way it's you know oh geez i feel like i'm doing grade 11 physics um but but it's you know and i hated physics let's just get that clear oh, I, I had to have a tutor and i hated it anyways carry on <laughs> class that was such a painful class um <laughs> but we have such a cool opportunity and i just think like even hopefully like i'm not sure who's you know even the listeners um, of the podcast the fact that somebody's even engaging and willing to spend some time and to be part of this conversation is awesome but not everybody who's like people who are maybe not in a mentally they're not in a great headspace might not have the opportunity to listen to this because they not might not be open to it but how are we reaching those people right and i'm really looking at again i'm i'm approaching this from a, an academic approach in in this situation with my schoolwork um but i'm really trying to to take what we we intrinsically know but we have no proof of it and say okay here's here's what we need like Here's some data because we're moving again into evidence-based, evidence-informed, and we're a data-driven society. But the problem with data-driven society is it doesn't really measure how you feel. And we have to like, we can't just base everything on data and this is the data and this is what people said, but like, how do they feel? And how do we, how do we move that out there? And how do we, you know, I, I think we just need to take a, like a really different approach and it all needs to mix together. I mean, that seems so simplistic because it's not. Not it, but I mean, I that's just it. Like, isn't that Occam's razor, right? Like, the simplest explanation is usually the correct one, or something like that. Yeah, but it doesn't make the solution simple. <laughs> no, no, but yeah, I mean, I, like, I think about this, and I think from coast to coast in Canada, like, yeah. I speak to so many people who are all over our country, you know, in rural and urban and remote and whatever, and 
like many, if not most of the conversations are similar, right? So it's like the answer does seem simple. The path to get there doesn't. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you said that because if you take a pan-Canadian approach and we take these, you know, these, this ideology and what we do, you know, if you take big uh, paramedic services, like, I don't know, like take BCHS as a whole province, you take, you know, Toronto as a big service, take Ottawa, take those, you know, major, um, even, you know, you think of Saskatchewan, right? They've got the two divides and, but the the thing with with all that is that it's the big the big players that are you know doing this, but it's the people that have you know four ambulances that their deputy chief is also their scheduler, which is also that that you know we're not really addressing and we're coming up with solutions that will work for a big organization. But what about those smaller organizations where that's your neighbor? And it's it just I just find our approach is to sort of uniform addressing the big the big ships but what about the little sailboats that are just trying to navigate channels like we have to think about them too and I just find that there's a bit of a gap Mm. and we need to because you know a small a small paramedic service or a small nonprofit, like the nonprofit clinic I'm working for we don't have a lot of money to send people so we're looking for like like you guys um, I know you're giving a 50% discount so I think it's November 11th so I'm going to hop on that but we need to look at like how do we reach out and provide space and opportunity for people that don't have the space or the funds or the people? Because those are the ones that are going to struggle. And those are what we need to sort of align with and address and make sure that we're doing a, an approach to everybody. Sort of diversity, not, not equity. It's just everybody has to have access to it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it is an equity kind of an issue and, and for sure. Right. Like, I mean, it's, it's, we can have different conversations with a big service in Toronto, like without question we can, then, you know, a small service, I think I'm going to Smithers BC at some point in the spring, um, right? And they're going to bring together everybody from all of those surrounding municipalities and remote regions, what have you. Well, they have nothing, right? Like they're struggling just to find, so I'm with you. And, you know, I think circling back to what we were talking about before we hit record, like I'm so excited, not just about our data, but I'm just excited to see data that supports the fact that like, you know, I I I love my discipline of psychology, but I also think we need to evolve. And I'm thrilled to see that we can do um, really interesting things, you know, from a psychological perspective outside of the traditional way that mental health services have typically been deployed. Yeah, well, it wasn't working. Right. It wasn't working. So we got to change. And you know what? That's unfair of me to say it wasn't working because it was working for some people. But yeah. was it working because it worked for that person or was it working because inherently they had the the tools and the resources to deal with it? So right. but that's like, how do I know that? I don't know. So that's part of that's part of my research that I'm going to be doing with, you know, the support of Dr. Kathleen Norman is my advisor and she's so good at like what do we want to accomplish and what, like, where are we going? So, cause I, I get so passionate and she's like, yeah, but what do you need to get to move this forward? And she's been really good at sort of guiding like, okay, so like, how can we navigate and get what's needed to get to where we need to go? Uh-huh. Uh, so, like we need to start with where are we? Yeah. And, and what do we need and what, what do we think we've been doing well, but maybe we haven't been doing well. And again, those people that are off, you know they're off of work because they're not doing well or they're not they just didn't have the support how are we reaching them because when they're off they're with like wsib or WorkSafe bc or we can't contact them and reach them so how do we make sure and part of again i might be going down a different um thing here but um tony um 
Tony was in my class and she works for, um, geez, I'm trying to remember who she works for. Um, anyway, she's doing a full return to work. And a lot of the problem is when people go off work is we don't return them to work effectively. Yeah. She's yeah. trying to think of it. It's a is major. She no, she's, well, she's the national. Geez, she's going to kill me here. Um, she works for, what's the big organization that we send a lot of people with uh, PTSD to in? Um, like Edgewood? Uh, no, it's not Edgewood. I can't think of the other name now. Homewood? Homewood, that's it. You win. But she's, and she's doing, and it's funny because, you know, we worry about people in the workplace or keeping them safe in the workplace. But what I really recognize is it's people outside, uh, people yeah. who return. And we had an individual and um, when I was working with one of the organizations who was off and was really mentally unwell and the structure of return to work just actually was really fearful for him. And I said, well, like, I have a car, like I'm a, I'm a deputy chief, I have a car, like why are we doing this one size fits all approach? He's come, we had a, I really believe in integrating occupational um, therapists into return to work practice. Uh -huh. And I'm a real believer. And maybe it's also because we had that opportunity and probably because half the, this, my cohort are occupational therapists and we go down these rabbit holes late at night talking about stuff. But so we had an occupational therapist and I said like, what, what does, what does this gentleman need? to return to work and the come back for four hours, eight hours, 12 hours, you know what? That wasn't gonna work and and we lost him. So I said, yeah, use my car, I don't care. I don't need it. Like I won't go out and hop calls cause I still always like to hop calls even as a deputy chief. Um, so I said, yeah, use my car, I don't care. Like take my car and for the longest time he was sort of weirdly protected in the deputy chief car, right? Like he was in that car, so he wasn't assigned calls. He could pick and choose what he wanted. We had the occupational therapist rode out with him. Like we made a return to work that was based on him. And that's what Tony is actually working on. She's doing a study of how to return people to work. And, you know, we're doing not, not challenging, like we're doing good about before operational stress. Yeah. But my criticism to before operational stress is uh, that's great, but it's during operational stress and reintegrating into operational stress is where I would like to challenge you. So I do yeah. find that the, the title, Ryan and I had this, I said, your title's wrong, my friend, your title's wrong. Um, because people have to say, well, I'm already in operation, so why would I need to know before? I've already, I'm past that. So you know what, you're, you know, it's before the next operational stress. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's feedback well taken. I mean, when I, when I came up with the name, to me, it was before operational stress, the obvious application, which would be like pre-career or very, very early career, like recruit training. But I also sort of conceptualized it as like, before you put your uniform on you know like before any degree of universe uniform of operational stress because yeah like it's again it's this continual cycling of um <clears throat> how am i what did i just experience how are we how are we coming back like right and these constant cycles throughout a day a tour a month a career right yeah and and we take things i'm gonna i'm gonna say a statement for everybody we take things so literal like what's yeah. the before they sign on it yes or no okay where is this where yeah like, yeah, yeah so to me before operational you know it's like yeah i'm already in it why do i need a course before so i appreciate that um and i appreciate where it's coming from on your viewpoint but um and and you're totally correct in that but we have the opportunity that yeah. i think moving forward to say like it's i think where we need to focus is yes Absolutely. And like the colleges are doing such a good job. When I was with Toronto, we were hiring people. And one of the questions John Lane actually said he was doing the hiring process and we did a, like an M, uh, little MMI interviews and yep. I got the mental, the mental health one. So it was like 
300 or 200 people that I got the same answer. It was like, oh, geez. But it was so fascinating because the new generation coming out of college, they knew themselves. They oh. knew what was And it, because the colleges are doing such a good job um, out of saying this is a priority and this is your mental health, and then when we interviewed some people that were coming from different services, they and, and I'm painting a really broad brush here, they sort of stumbled because it's, but the new generation of paramedics, for example, that's part of what they learn about is like how to take care of yourself. They are creating peer support groups I, at Humber College. Um, I went to school at Humber College for my paramedic. They actually now have a peer support team for the students. Like that's so oh, awesome. That's so so they cool. created that framework and that this is what you have to have. Um, but again, I think, um, again, totally my opinion, and I'm wrong lots, um, is that we need to figure out, A, how do we meet the needs of the people that are there? B, how do we meet the needs of the people that are no longer in the org, no longer doing it? Because they're still struggling outside. How do we reach those people? Because a lot of people have left because they couldn't do it anymore or have retired out. And we're, we're missing a lot of the retirees or people who have like the trauma or the impact is still there. And then I think the other area um, is how do we get people back to work safely? Yeah, do you know any of the um, the data, the work of the reintegration programs and the um, program coming out of Edmonton Police Service? None. Nope. I'm gonna send anything. that to you. Awesome. Yeah. 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 I don't know anything about that? Okay. So a, go ahead, Brian. You know it better. You actually know it better than I do. So you. Yeah, yeah I wholeheartedly agree. I think we we for years missed the point of how to bring people back safely and yeah having. Uh, Megan, back in 2017, when I was trained in the clinician level prolonged exposure therapy model by Dr. Edna Foda, UPenn, we yeah. were part of the first cohort on how to work through, you know, bringing people back healthy, working collaboratively with occupational therapists, you yeah. know, have, you know, giving the member a voice about what they feel they would actually benefit from on their return to work. I and I mean, yeah, the. <laughs> really good job in, in researching this and hopefully it's published soon. But, you know, I, I worked with probably, oh, close to 100 to 150 members over five years collaboratively with many clinicians and occupational therapists that actually understand this. And I can't agree more. I mean, you know, I've always said we need to look after our members from recruitment to retirement. And that's translatable across the span. Yeah, all the way. And I just, you know, we're missing certain components, but that's yeah. that logical safety piece that an organization can really kind of start to unpack. And yes, it'll take a generation, but there are pockets of people that are really like Glenn Close, Colleen Mooney. They started this up in Edmonton with EPS. You know, it's been translated now down here to Calgary with Calgary Fire Department. They're starting a reintegration team, CPS. The list goes on. So yeah. it's the entire RCMP now has the reintegration program. Yeah, so I, I have some um, I have some publications I can send your way, um, Heather. I'll do that once we're done, so you can take a look at it. Love it. I anything you have, I I am an absolute geek. I geek out on all that stuff. I love reading it. And then my problem though is I share it, <laughs> which isn't a problem. But I always I have to ask whenever I'm like, are you are you open to receiving articles? Because as I read stuff, I think, oh, this makes me think of this person. So I always ask like. Are you open to this communication? I'm not sending you this because I think you need to read it. I'm sending it because I think it's impactful. I love that. Anything you want to send my way, I'm totally open. Yeah. And, and I'm I'm exactly the same way. I think we all are. So yeah, I I think just because you know, like again, there's so many people with so much heart invested in this who are you know tackling this multi sort of pronged problem from so many different angles, right? Like again, recruitment to retirement and beyond. 
well, not one program, not one person, not one agency is going to be able to do all of that. So the fact that there's like all of these people who are, you know, like I was on a thing this week with um, Beth Milliard out of York Police and like I would consider her an ex, what's that? I met Beth a long time ago when I was with Toronto Paramedic Services on the peer support team. We did a shared training. Uh, oh, it's a Mitchell model. I think we were yeah. doing the Mitchell model. So I've met Beth, but like a long time ago. And I actually did, um, for my comps exam, I actually read her article. I couldn't include it because it was on spe specifically on police, which wasn't part of it. But she's yeah. a really great advocate, and I've been following her work. Right. And like like she's looking at peer support and, you know, how do we establish best practices for peer support? I mean, we're trying to do something about, you know, upstream and early career training and, you know, looking at what, you know, Colleen and, and Glenn and everyone's been doing with reintegration. Like there's just so many pieces to this and so many fantastic Canadians um, who are really making a mark, right? Like being at that conference earlier this week, um, which is attended by a lot of international participants. I mean, Canada is leading the way. We are doing amazing things to try yeah. to help our uniform service personnel. Australia is doing really good too. I like a lot of their articles, but it's, it's interesting to tie back. And for some reason, I'm not going to get the right terminology, which I'm kicking myself for. Like when I read an article and I think what we, your article on, um, Functional disconnection. Give me the right terminology. Functional disconnection and reconnection. Oh, I got it. There you go. I did yeah. get it. I, I have shared that. When I read that, um, Ryan shared it to me and I was like, holy smoke. So that's totally embedded in a lot of my my writings now is based on that, what you wrote. And when I'm talking to, because I do keep track, like I, I, I mean, I'm friends with people that I've known for 25 years in paramedic services and people that I've met in the last year. I can't tell you the amount of people I've shared that article with where they were able to put a label on what they were feeling and their behaviors, but they didn't understand it. And they're like, holy shit, like, oh, that was it. So it's just, oh, there you go. I said shit three times in this podcast. Sorry about they that. They like, fuck uh, it, asshole, whatever, we're done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, beep. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's so funny because it actually, it like just articles like that um, empower people to understand what they're feeling. Um, and a lot of people, though, don't read, like that's a really in-depth article. So I'm trying to just, I'm not stealing your idea at all because you definitely get all the credit. So I'm trying to make it into a more digestible conversation piece for people because it's, you know, if people don't want to read that sort of, that much of an in-depth not everybody reads sort of to that yeah. to that level or are interested in reading because it really takes time to digest and to understand it but um but everyone's capable of it but when when i've been able to share that sort of terminology people are like okay i get it because we've actually put something a term to something that we feel in our behavior. And then it's like, oh, geez. So I, I, I will not out the person, but I really realized that they do it quite a bit. And and um, peer support from, honestly, this person I've known for about 18 years, we did a call years ago and we still connect on the anniversary of this really bad call. I reach out to this person and say, hey, how you doing? Here we go, it's that time again, and how we doing? And I said, hey, I'm sending you an article. And I really figured I figured something out. And um, it was just such a cool experience because they're like, holy beep. Like, that was so <laughs> cool. So how do we take those? And even like um, I talked about it earlier, like um, Dr. Megan Angelo, she works out of Queens. And uh, she wrote that like that troop model about how we talk about it, right? Like, and we're I think we're just dumping everything in the same bucket, but it's not. It's like there's organizational stressors, there's operational stressors, and there's personal stressors. And we're we're kind of addressing like this is it, but addressing the organization, the operational and the personal are totally different things. Like 
Uh -huh. about this forever, but yeah, it's it's just the terminology that we have to we have to allow people a label to understand yeah. what we've all been feeling. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. And I think that's exactly what all of this work is doing. And it's coming together in this way that, yeah, I mean, again, back to the one person, right? If that, you know, that framework, that language helps one person, I mean, that's fantastic, right? And and hopefully there's a force multiplying effect in that, you know? I just think it's so cool to like, I just am so happy we met, Heather. I'm happy our paths crossed in whatever way that they did, because I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this stuff 18 years from now, and I'm I'm I thrilled it. about it. I, I love it. It's so good. <laughs> again because i think there's more here yeah i think conversations to have because i think you know you broke it down really succinctly the organizational the operational and then the personal and i think what does that look like and how do we impact that in so many different ways with all of the research and all of the amazing people that are doing work around the same things you know yeah. a bigger conversation probably at some conference which i'm not going to organize but um well yeah. Let me, let me know. I mean, as long as my work's there, I, I love it. And you know, it's not always the presentation that creates the dialogue that I find that's like the launching point. And then it's when you oh, sort cool. of sit around the table and you're like, oh, so good. It's the after the conference conversations when you're sitting, you know, in the pub um, and just having some good discussions. I'm like That was really good. But and it was interesting to take it back to your um, dysfunctional, like the disconnect is that years ago I did a call and I'm really fortunate, as I said, my husband's a retired police officer, totally love him. Um, don't always like him, but always love him. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, and again, I can't listen, let him listen to it, but it was funny because we did a call a long, long time ago and I didn't realize um, how much it, it bothered me. And my partner and I were coming in and doing overtime together and we always wanted to be together because we really worked on stuff. And then finally he called me out. He's like, you're really, and I was disconnected when I came home and it was good. Like everything was good. I'm mentally well and everything is good. But he called me out on it because he had that wherewithal and that ability to, to identify because he was, you know, he was part of the ETF in Toronto. So he was really aware about, you know, his feelings and, you know, big, big, tough, really highly trained um, police officers, but they also needed to be aware of how they felt, really shut out to that team. And I was like, holy smoke. So I was like, yeah, I guess I did. I did slightly disconnect, but I had a partner and, you know, the love of my life who, who was able to say, hey, whoa, come back, like pull me in. But I don't think a lot of the families, the spouses, like I'm so fortunate in that I married, you know, um, a really amazing man that was a police officer that, I mean, he was a man first and a police officer second, but he could identify that. And I think that's in our area. And I see that there's a study on LinkedIn. I saw a QRS code that we're finally starting to identify the families because I think, you know, good luck meeting a paramedic cop or firefighter that, you know, has made it through the first marriage. I think that's fantastic. And I admire people who are successful in that because I know I sure wasn't. Um, but I think that that's, that's something that also is part of this big, big, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah, so. Well, um, and I'm going to send you, so, I mean, we don't have time to go into it now, but I'm, I'm going to send you some info because uh, we've got a complimentary program to boss being developed and, and evaluated right now called Family First Responder. And it's exactly that. It's for spouses. And the intention is, um, so we actually have a functional disconnection reconnection model for, for families. And P.S. There's two articles that are out for peer review right now that we hope will be published in the next month or two. On so it's mine. It's my next version of FDFR, and then we've got the family version of it that we're that we're going to publish. But it's like we can't exclude the families and the spouses from this conversation. It has to be this ecosystem that we're that we're absolutely. talking about. Absolutely, and I think that's why you know I think that's why I'm so fortunate 
and I had really good mental health and resiliency and because, you know, I grew up with my dad, who was a psychologist. Like I said at the beginning, we sat at the family table and we talked about it. Um, you know, my husband is absolutely phenomenal where we can talk about that and it's safe because he gets it. I've had really great work partners that, you know, you're sitting in the front of the cab for 10 and a half years together with the exception of two babies in there, right? You get to know each other really well. And it's it's that all the courses I took, the Mitchell model, R2MR, um, I am taking your BOS program right now. Like um, those have been helpful, but my real solid footing came from my family, my friends, my partners. And even like, you know, Ryan, I feel an instant kinship when we talked for that hour. Like that was that was just so awesome, right? To just have that like, hey, this is what I'm feeling. Yeah, me too. Like that was so great. But those are what, and it came from a position of, of, of being inquisitive and being open and being vulnerable. And those are the most impactful. Like that was an awesome day. I was, I so enjoyed talking. I was like, that's so good. I go for a walk. I'm still talking to you on my walk, right? Like, hey, Ryan, I, the conversation kept going in my head for a lot of the day. <laughs> oh, I got to call you back. You know, Heather, I so appreciate your perspectives. And I think, you know, as we, as we close up here in the next couple of minutes, I have a question, you know, given all of the breadth and scope of what we discussed, you know, for our listeners, can you just give maybe two or three tangible takeaways? Because we've covered so many broad topics, but from your perspective, you know, the, the focus of the conversation was really around the leadership pieces. Um, can you give our listeners just maybe two or three really good tangible takeaways as they as they finish listening to the podcast? No pressure there, Ryan, no pressure. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I, and I just came up with that question out of my head just now, just so you know. So yeah, that's okay. Home run. I think the most important thing is that leadership don't don't read one thing and think it's think it's the right thing. Like read a lot of stuff and be open and acknowledge that you know challenge what you read and mm. challenge the thought process and engage and and be willing to stand up and say you know I I disagree and I challenge with you I challenge you on that and and to really engage in those conversations and again back to that Cotter article my one of my favorite is that cohesive collaboration is is challenge it and and be that welcome have that discussion and uh and say yeah I want to really talk about that and then we'll walk away but understand that as leaders it's not about changing somebody's viewpoint to your own it's about ex accepting acknowledging and maybe doing some coaching and guiding which is something i don't think we do enough in leadership is mentorship in the moment um that's a whole other topic mentorship in the moment um so that would be one thing and then the other thing is just be yourself like i recently um after 24 almost 25 years in emergency medical services um i took the risk we're so golden handcuffed this is what we've done for 25 years people are like you're crazy um you know i had the opportunity to to re-engage in the ems world and i said you know what i i feel like i want to learn something else and you know at 51 years old i thought like i can stick with what i know or i can go somewhere where i can learn something new and i think i'm comfortable being uncomfortable and if i got bored of something or i or if i just honestly didn't like where i what i was doing and i didn't believe in where i was or i didn't like um, I didn't feel like I could help move the wherever they were going forward, then go where you can. Mm. Risk. So many people are stale or bitter or negative or just complaining. Then then do something else. Take the risk. Enjoy the ride and be uncomfortable. It's just much more fun. I know no, that, that was last December when I came across to here. So. <laughs> Exactly. And and the other thing is like, although I'm, you know, I've stepped into this new role, 
I still like I, I want to be engaged in other things constantly and don't just step into one role and limit yourself into that one thing. Always keep something not on the side of your desk because this has equal passion. It's not a paid job to do this. I mean, I'm paying to do my education, but I, I think that that's I'm paying myself in that I'm educating myself. So it's and it's not people like I can't afford the course. You can't not afford the course. Mm. You can't not afford to educate yourself. You can't not afford like find it. Ask also the other, you asked for two or three. So my last thing is, if you can't afford it, reach out and ask if somebody can to throw you a bone, right? Like the organization I'm working for is a nonprofit. Really believe in, I've only been there a short time. The people are phenomenal at Shoreline. And so I'm I'm not going to be shy and saying, we really need to engage and to embrace, but can you help us? Because we can't afford it, but we will support it, educate, share, and and share the knowledge translation. Because sometimes it's not about organizations making money from their education pieces is about knowing that that education piece is going to be translated to other people. Um, so that's sort of three long winded. Does that did that make sense, Ryan? That was beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But that's it. Take the risk. Be uncomfortable. Go where you feel you need to go. And and I don't want to be a, an optimist all the time, but sometimes you have to just be uncomfortable and you have to make the change. Yeah. Totally. Thank you so much, Heather, for your time. Oh, you're welcome. This was great. I, I feel like uh, I feel like we need to talk offline again, but uh, such a good conversation and, and truly honored by being even asked to be on here. I feel like I know about this much about this much. And I'm just I'm just that second crazy dancer on the side of the hill. Um, you are amazing, Heather. No, I mean, I learned a ton from you and I'm going to send you some references and send me anything. And this is just the first conversation of many. Like, I, I just love this. This was fantastic. Thank you. No, thank you. I, I love talking about this, and uh, and I'm I'm open to talk to anyone about this. I have an hour drive to work and an hour drive home, and usually that hour drive to and from work, with the exception of when I bounce over to the states because I live right on the west coast in Sioux. Sometimes my phone goes. Uh, most of my my drive time is like sharing this knowledge and this information, and it's just so fun. That's that so weird. It is. <laughs> it is. No, it totally is. I think we completely agree. Anyways, thank you, thank you, thank you for this gift of your time. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It was really good. Thanks. Thanks to you and, and your organization. And thanks for what you both are doing. I so believe in in what you're doing. I, I really, truly do believe in it. Amazing. Okay. Awesome. You too. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Mental Health Mixtape brought to you by the Before Operational Stress Program. We hope today's conversation has resonated with you and provided valuable insights into navigating the complexities of mental health. Remember, your well-being is our priority. If you or someone you know could benefit from the support and resources offered by the Before Operational Stress Program, don't hesitate to reach out. Take that first step towards a healthier, more resilient you. And here's a special treat for our dedicated listeners. A 15% discount waits for you when you sign up through the code provided in the show notes. Investing in your mental health has never been more accessible. We appreciate your continued support and commitment to breaking the stigma surrounding mental health. Let's keep the conversation going. And until next time, Take care of yourselves and each other.